The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in today's show, we'll talk about a great idea, creating a new federal writers project, hiring a thousand out-of-work writers and journalists to document American lives during the pandemic year. That's in a bill proposed in the House by L.A. Representative Ted Lieu. The idea comes from David Kippen. He's the former director of literature for the National Endowment for the Arts. We'll speak with David later in the show. But first, voting rights, the Senate, and the filibuster. The Senate debate on voting rights has been blocked by Republicans. On Tuesday, they prevented not a vote, but just a debate on the Democrats for the People Act, this sweeping elections overhaul that we've talked about here many times. But this is not the end. This was is one battle. It's a big one, but now there's going to be a different battle. Today's action has made the number one item on the Democratic agenda the filibuster. It has to be scrapped or at least changed. For comment and analysis, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he is national affairs correspondent for the nation. We reached him today in Madison. Hi, John. Hello, John. It's good to be with you. Well, today's vote is not the end of voting rights reform in the Senate, not yet at least. The Congress has a July 4th recess coming up. It starts June 28th. The Senate comes back July 10th. What's the plan at this point? Here's the deal. I interviewed Chuck Schumer a month or so ago for The Nation. We got into the filibuster stuff, and what he made clear was that he's got members of his caucus, not just, you know, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, but actually a few more who are very shaky on filibuster reform. Let's list here Dianne Feinstein of California. Perhaps in many ways the most indefensible of the bunch. But she's not alone. There are others, including, you know, some senators from states that other states that vote Democratic and also some senators from states like Montana that, that tend to vote pretty Republican. So you got this, you got this bunch. And Schumer's theory from the start has been, okay, I know I can't strong arm them. And so I want to show them forcing actual votes on the For the People Act creates a circumstance where it becomes obvious that the Republicans are not going to give you anything. They're not going to give you an inch. And I mean, that was obvious to you several years ago. It was <laughs> obvious you. to me the better part of a generation ago. <laughs> it, it's kind of comic that this has to play out. But what we realize is that it's not that Joe Manchin doesn't know that. It's not that Kirsten Cinema doesn't know that. What you're doing is actually showing their constituents that. You're showing everybody, okay, the Republicans are not going to do bipartisanship. So when your senator talks about bipartisanship, that's BS. That isn't, that's not real. Now the question is, can you move Manchin, Cinema, and some of these others? Cinema, in particular, has given signals that she is very unwilling to move. And she even yeah. talks about, you know, what we'll lose if we lose the filibuster, which is an absurd argument that we could spend you know, the next several hours on if you want. But there is the opening with this recess for something real, and that is a mobilization of constituents of these senators to say, we want this. We want to make this happen. And money spent by activist groups to put up ads, to push, to pull, to do everything possible 
to create an opening, not for the filibuster reform that you and I might want, you know, which is get rid of it, but to do a workaround, i.e. waive the filibuster for this issue. On the baseline issues of democracy, whether we can have a functional system where the people's will is represented, those can't be filibustered. Uh, it gives cinema and mansion and others space. They can say, well, we're not getting rid of the filibuster, but we are you know, doing this little, little workaround. We will see what kind of mobilization takes place. But if it's big, you know, if you can get thousands, even tens of thousands out, which you should, that's what should happen, yeah. um, then you've got the prospect that you can, can, can move politicians. They do move in response to pressure. And the last thing I'll say is, I hope they will frame it around the arguments that were used uh, by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the 1960s. King feared a filibuster uh, in regard to Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act because these were very bold moves. He feared that filibuster not from conservative Republicans, but from, you know, Southern Democrats uh, who were, in fact, you know, segregationists. What King did was he went to Washington. He appeared on television. And he said, you know, boy, if they try the filibuster on this, you know, there's just no question we're going to have to go to the streets. And uh, King was uh, obviously a proponent of uh, nonviolence. But um, I think at that time, people saw it as, you know, a a really serious issue that if they filibustered, this could really create a, a, a point of great tension in the country. And my hope is that contemporary activists will in the King tradition, propose, you know, mass, mass mobilizations in the streets to say that this just can't go on. We're not going to let our democracy die on this hill. So let's talk about the two most significant figures who sort of lead the resistance on filibuster reform. Of course, first, Joe Manchin. How many times have we talked about Joe Manchin here? Joe Manchin more than anyone else, holds our future in his hands. The New Yorker this week calls him the man who controls the Senate, and it's significant that he's proposed his own voting rights bill as a sort of substitute for S-1, the For the People Act. It has a lot of good things in it. It would make Election Day a public holiday. It mandates 15 consecutive days of early voting. It allows for automatic voter registration through the DMV. It curbs partisan gerrymandering. It restores federal preclearance for new voting rules. Some of the things in the For the People Act, it doesn't do. It doesn't control dark money. It doesn't have federal uh, funding for elections. And it also includes a mild form of voter ID. Now we have the Joe Manchin bill. And as you have said on this show, Joe Manchin likes the attention. So will Joe Manchin take the actions necessary for the Joe Manchin bill to become law? Interestingly enough, Stacey Abrams promptly endorsed it. And of course, Mitch McConnell immediately started calling it the Stacey Abrams bill. (laughs) Now Biden has endorsed it. Obama has endorsed it. It looks like that's what we're going to be fighting for, even though progressives at the moment anyway are saying we want the For the People Act. Why do you think there's so much uh, apparent support at the top of the Democratic Party for the Joe Manchin bill? And uh, where should progressives uh, throw in the towel on at this point? Well, the, the first part of this is that you asked, you know, or you, you said, you know, how many times have we spoken about Joe Manchin? 
And the answer to that question is not as many times as Joe Manchin (laughs) would like us to talk about him. Uh, Because Joe Manchin uh, really likes being the center of attention. And, um, And he likes being a hero. He's exactly where he wants to be. He's the guy who... Uh, is anything but a hero on a host of issues who suddenly everybody's thrown in saying, well, Joe Manchin, he's got the way out of here. He, he's got the flashlight. We're in, the, in this tunnel. Show us the way, Joe. The reason people are coming to him is not, I would point out, that they love Joe Manchin or that they think he's come up with a genius proposal. Uh, anybody could have come up with this proposal two months ago, three months ago, last year. It is because of the urgency of the moment. Uh, the Brennan Center, which does fantastic work on this, can barely keep up with the number of bills that are coming through these state legislatures around the country. They are literally passing bills every day to make it harder to vote. They're clearly coordinating a national effort to get every legislature they can to make it harder to vote. And the people on the ground, the people working on this, like people like Stacey Abrams, are looking at this saying, you know, we are facing an absolute crisis going into the 2022 election. It could flip Senate seats. It could make it, you know, harder to do all sorts of stuff. So what they're saying is, while they want more, and I think everybody who's signing on, you know, all these folks that you've just mentioned, are people who want campaign finance reform. And they, they are often very critical of voter ID, certainly the abusive uses of voter ID. But what they're saying is, you know, look, in this emergency situation, we've got to act. Uh, the frustrating thing about it is that uh, Democrats have got control of the Senate. They have control of the House. They have control of the presidency for the first time since 2010, right? This is a decade. And they can't even do basics to address Citizens United and, and money and politics issues. They're going to be narrowed into this one zone. It's frustrating, but it is the zone of play at this point because, you know, in, in a way, the debates about money and politics now seem, you know, almost gentle compared to where we're at now. That brings us to the core question you asked. What's Joe Manchin going to do now that the Joe Manchin bill is in play? Well, this is where it gets interesting. Manchin's bluff was called immediately, not by any Democrat, but by Mitch McConnell. Yeah. And Mitch McConnell said, this isn't going anywhere. And in fact, I'm going to play the race card on you uh, to try and, and make this into something that, that my base, McConnell's base, will see as dangerous. Yeah. That he just isn't going to come around. And remember the final thing. You can get Mansion, You still have to get cinema. Yeah, so let's talk about cinema here. Cinema has a different argument. She, Monday night, published an op-ed in the Washington Post that seemed to say categorically no to any reform of the filibuster. Her argument, you've referred to it briefly, is she has taken the long view that if we eliminate the filibuster now, in the future, Republicans could repeal the law that we're going to pass and replace it, she says. I'm quoting from her piece. It could be replaced by a nationwide voter ID law or restrictions on voting by mail in federal elections over the objections of the minority. That's her argument. But wait a minute. Aren't the Republicans already trying to impose oppressive voter ID laws and restrict voting by mail? We already live in that world. Here's kind of the problem with the Kirsten Cinema argument, especially a problem when you consider that she once served in the Arizona legislature. So she should kind of know 
this reality that elections are run by the states. The federal government can establish uh, some baseline requirements, and I and I hope they do. I think it's very very important for the government to federal government to step in here. But the, you know the problem is at the state level right now, and the things that that she's saying. Oh, all the Republicans might come along and do you know like crackdowns on voter rights and might do voter suppression. They're doing it, yeah. and in fact, they're doing it pretty much in most of the places that matter, right? Because of a unique circumstance, and that is that. In uh, Georgia, in Arizona, in a whole bunch of other states, Republicans, even states that voted for Biden, Republicans still have control of the governorship and the legislature. Now, they don't have it in every one of these states that we're talking about that are important swing states. Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, those states, you have a Democratic governor, but you're still dealing with a Republican legislature and a push and pull and all kinds of pressures there. Her argument is uniquely unrealistic. But the second thing, and this is the deeper argument, is it's it's like I, I see Kirsten Sinema's argument as the Mitch McConnell, you know, he might do something bad. The, the notion that the Republicans might, they're going to. It's guaranteed. I promise you. Mitch McConnell, I mean, the poor guy, no one takes him seriously. I feel for <laughs> Mitch McConnell. Like last week, he's running around going, yeah, yeah steal a Supreme Court nomination from Biden. We're going to do it for sure. Put me back in charge. I'm going to block the nomination in, in 2024. And then and then Hugh Hewitt goes, well, yeah, well, what about 2023? And again, Mitch McConnell smiles and goes, we'll have to discuss that at the time. So he's even holding out the possibility of blocking Supreme Court nominations for two years to keep a Democrat from appointing somebody to the Supreme Court. What is the possibility what is the possibility if you're blocking Supreme Court nominations that you aren't going to get rid of the filibuster if that's what's convenient for you to do whatever you want to do? Zero. I mean, he's going to do it. And so Kirsten Sinema's argument is literally not worth the paper it's printed on. So now it's up to the activists, especially in Arizona and in West Virginia, and in Montana, and some of the other, and in California. Delaware, California, maybe New Hampshire. There's a lot of places where, you know, look, let's yeah. let's let's make it a national fight. Um, of course, let's put big energy into uh, Arizona, into West Virginia, into Montana, and other states. But let's, let's go big on this thing. It's got to be yeah. something that the whole country is talking about. And it has to be genuine and at the grassroots in the key states. Can't just be people coming in from elsewhere. People ought to, you know, raise the banner where they live, make the noise where they're at. And then ultimately, when Congress comes back into session, if there is a proposal to bring folks to D.C., then, yeah, I think that's, that's very appropriate. We live in an era where it is much more possible to mobilize quickly. And the key is to make this issue so central that the mobilization is possible. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, John. Always great to have you on the show. Thank you, John. It's an honor to speak with you. Here's an idea. How about starting a new federal writers project? How about the government hiring a thousand writers and unemployed journalists all over the place to document the unprecedented year we've just been through, the COVID year? 
Congressman Ted Lieu of Los Angeles has introduced a bill in Congress to do just that. And the idea comes from David Kippen. He's former director of literature for the National Endowment for the Arts, and he's founder of the nonprofit bilingual storefront lending library Libros Schmibros in LA's Boyle Heights. He's also the author of the modern library book Dear Los Angeles, The City in Diaries and Letters, 1542 to 2018. And he's a member of the full-time writing faculty at UCLA. We reached him today somewhere in Northern California. David Kippen, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, John. And a point of order, um, the bill is co-sponsored by Teresa Ledger Fernandez of New Mexico. Thank you for that. Well, first of all, remind us what the Federal Writers Project of the 1930s was and what it did. Well, in the 1930s, of course, America was flat on its back. And the unemployment rate was hellacious. And the Federal Writers Project was part of the New Deal, was part of, um, you know, the uh, FDR's solution, uh, or so he hoped, and so in some respects it turned out to be, to what America was going through. Uh, It put as many as 6,600 workers at a time, that is to say writers, editors, photographers, broadcasters like yourself, librarians, (laughs) to work chronicling not just what was going on in the country at that time, of which there was plenty, but also American history, American voices. They took oral histories and basically invented the discipline of oral history, uh, talking to formerly enslaved people, 2,300 of them. The number of general interviews with everybody from longshoremen to seamstresses uh, topped 10,000, as did ultimately the staff of the project, um, all told over the course of four years. The writers for the original project, Time Magazine said, were, quote, unemployed newspapermen, poets, graduates of schools of journalism who had never had jobs, authors of unpublished novels, high school teachers, and people who had always wanted to write, close quote. They thought this was a ridiculous list. What do you think of that list? Certainly all of that was true, but alongside them, you had the likes of Zora Neale Hurston and John Cheever and Richard Wright and Ralph Ellison and Saul Bellow. And speaking of broadcasters, Studs Terkel got behind his first microphone for the Federal Writers Project. Okay. Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. The uh, WPA Guide to Minnesota, a a product of the Federal Writers Project, was published in 1938, along with guides to all the other states and some of the biggest cities. The Minnesota book is basically a travel guide. It features 20 road trips, six city tours, 15 Boundary Waters canoe trips. And the most notable of the WPA writers in Minnesota was Maridel Lesseur, who later wrote about the experience of being in the Writer's Project in her proletarian novel about suffering in St. Paul. It's called The Girl, and it's become a kind of feminist classic of 30s literature, even though it wasn't discovered and and published until much uh, later. That's kind of par for the course for the Writer's Project, isn't it? 
Oh, very much so. Uh, I, the American guides were what most people associate with the project, although there was so much else. They created guides to all 48 states, which consisted of not just tour guides. That tended to be the last third. The first third was historical essays and cultural essays about society in any given state. The middle was essays about cities. Uh, then it wrapped up with the tour guides. And these were such a sensation that, uh, you know, far beyond everybody's expectations. They just wanted to give writers basically a shovel to lean on and, and a way to, you know, keep the pot boiling. But then after a couple of years, when the guides started coming out and becoming bestsellers and getting great reviews from, I believe, among other places, the nation, they realized they had a hit on their hands and they kept going. And they did not just the oral histories, but guides to cities, guides to regions, uh, you know, over 10,000 publications in all. And yes, Merida Lesur wrote an account of her time on the project. Anzia Yezierska, the Cinderella of the sweatshops, wrote an account of her time on the project. Now, of course, for every one of them, you had guys like John Cheever, who described his year, his year on the project as fixing the sentences of some incredibly lazy bastards. I don't want to make <laughs> this out like it was some sort of, you know, worker's paradise. But in fact, you had friendships develop on the project between people who might never otherwise have met. Many of them, you know, I mean, look at Saul Bellow and Ralph Ellison, who wound up cohabiting for a year there. It wasn't a worker's paradise, but it was a remarkable moment in American history whose time, I believe, has more than come again 85 years later. And there's plenty been going on for 85 years for them to write about. So the 1930s, as you have said, was a period of tremendous unemployment, including among writers. But today, of course, we live in a very different world. But but what? <laughs> well, first of all, yeah, um, over the last 10 years, one in four journalists are out of work. And a third of uh, publications nowadays have laid off people just since the pandemic. So you're talking about a, a crisis that has been made tremendously worse. And so, yes, to put writers uh, back to work, but also, you know, I, I believe it would serve other positive uh, uh, purposes. You're talking about a time in American history when the country is so divided, when people are not talking to each other and the, the urban-rural divide, the generational divide, which I think is as crucial and deleterious as any other in the country right now, is, is incredibly uh, uh, riven. I think that if you could put uh, not just all kinds of different people to work on this, not just laid-off uh, journalists all over the country, small-town papers who could maybe share uh, you know, whom the, the project could subsidize so that they're working half-time for the project, but the other half-time um, saving the, the expense of these, these small-town papers that are so up against it, that too could be a mitzvah. But, you know, yes, if you can uh, perhaps combine the generations. So you've got, well, my students at UCLA who are graduating from my writing classes straight back into their high school bedrooms, if they could somehow apprentice with laid-off or underemployed professional journalists, and maybe even teenage copy kids, then you're starting not just to chronicle the country, where it is now, where it's been for 85 years, but you're also incubating that next generation of, you know, the next Saul Bellow, the next uh, Take Your Pick, John Cheever, Ralph Ellison. So, so tell us about Ted Lou's bill and how this would work. First of all, how many people does he propose to include in his bill? 
Well, the bill so far, as it's written, and as we hope it will persevere through the legislative intestines, uh, would create jobs for between 900 to 1,000 writers, editors, photographers, journalists, and it would, it, it would be budgeted for a year with options to renew. It would be, as written, fairly COVID-specific. This is, I think, uh, justice and also pragmatic. I think it's likelier to find a, a willing audience on the Hill if that is emphasized. But at the same time, my wish in my heart of hearts, and I think I think um, you know the backers of the bill on the Hill as well, they would like this to develop after demonstrating success uh, for its original charge, as with the original project. It would be wonderful, don't you think, if it could morph into the kind of more ambitious repertorial project of chronicling modern society and go for, well, four years as the original project went, or who knows? I mean, you know, the minute America stops being interesting, then I think the project can wind down. And if uh, people want to help get this law creating a new federal writers project passed, what should they do? They should hit pause on their podcast, run to their laptop, send emails to their elected representatives, both in the House and in the Senate. Uh, they should write letters to uh, the editor of the local paper if they are lucky enough to live in a place with vibrant local media. They should call the local radio station. They should deploy whatever compromise they have on powerful elected officials. They should, in any way possible, make a whole lot of noise so that the Congress will be ashamed not to pass such a bill. And then, only when they've done all that, will they deserve to come back and hit play and hear the rest of your broadcast. And I have one other question, which I know a lot of our listeners are, are writers, friends of ours who are writers. Where, where can they apply for a job on the new Federal Writers Project? Well, you see, my last injunction to your listeners is kind of a prerequisite to the answer for your question. I mean, certainly everybody within the sound of my voice is welcome to email me and ask how they can help at K-I-P-E-N-D at gmail.com. But I will not be able to oblige except in encouraging them to, you know, hector their, their elected officials until passage. And then, yes, there will be a grant procedure through either libraries, uh, whether public or, as it turns out, nonprofit, like one I can think of off the top of my head, but also media guilds, communications, unions, newspapers, both for profit and, uh, and not for profit. Um, although, you know, the smaller the better. Uh, uh, only a few organizations are allowed to apply to this project via the Labor Department in order to uh, qualify for the program. And then they, I believe, will be doing the hiring. David Kippen. David, congratulations on getting a bill introduced in Congress. And thanks for talking with us today. I take no bows at intermission, but uh, cross your fingers and thanks for the time, John. I so appreciate it. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of the nation. 
Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. (laughs) 